thank you. It is uh, always a delight to be, have a chance up front to welcome you here. So welcome to those who are in the building, those of uh, you who are watching online, whether live streaming us now or perhaps watching the video uh, later on. And thank you, uh, Lara uh, and your team for leading us. Um, thank you for sharing your heart as well too. And I was just reminded, even in first service when Lara was sharing that, you know, when up front here, uh, we try to keep it together, we try to, you know, but we're, we're human beings, and sometimes when we have a rough week, it's not always easy uh, when our responsibilities are up here. But that's one of the things I, I love about Ebenezer, uh, is that we simply are who we are. And uh, sometimes if we're, we're a little bit, you know, we've been beat up a little bit during the week, uh, it's actually refreshing uh, to be able to come together and worship together, and I know I have found that those, those weeks when I come in and a little bit beat up, that I find healing uh, and restoration through the fellowship and through the worship uh, with each and every one of you. If you don't know me, uh, my name is Cal. I'm part of the staff team here. And with the often sporadic nature of the, of the summer months, it's great to be together. Uh, I ha had a chance to be away for the last couple of Sundays. I had a chance to be in Ottawa to visit and just to hang out with my oldest daughter, as well as to connect with friends and some former colleagues uh, from the church that I had the privilege of serving uh, back there. And this morning, it's also my privilege to walk us through another kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God parable as we continue this journey of discovery, uh, understanding what is the kingdom of heaven and its significance for us today. Now, I understand last week the service finished about 10 or 15 minutes early. So I'm going to, for those of you who were here last week and say, well, I kind of didn't get my money's worth, I'll try to rectify that this morning. <laughs> Uh, so I've got about 15 minutes of banked time that I may, I may just cash in on uh, today. Now, if you're new here and you think I'm joking, I may not be. We'll see how things go at the end. Now, Jesus used uh, kingdom parables to both usher in this new heavenly kingdom, the kingdom that we have defined as the place where Jesus reigns and rules, as well as to describe and to reveal aspects of this kingdom that often stood in contrast to earthly kingdoms. Sometimes the characteristics of the kingdom were things that the people longed for, hoped for, desired, because they were living under the oppression of the Roman Empire at the time. Other times, the characteristics of the kingdom were not at all what the people expected. Now, our parable this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 20, and it begins this way. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. You'll notice there is a typo up there. It's not Matthew 16, verse 1. It's Matthew 20, uh, verse 1. Now, before we begin, I do need to give credit to my former preaching professor, Preston Bush, who provided both inspiration and structure for the message that I want to share with you this morning. So to start, let's take a few minutes just, just to set things up. One of the virtues that seems to have taken center stage, certainly these past several years, is a virtue of fairness. And at face value, fairness is something we should strive for, especially if we consider ourselves Christians or Christ followers. Even if the circumstances in which we find ourselves in dictate otherwise, Christians should strive to be fair. Because after all, Jesus is fair. All of my daughters played soccer in their younger years, and they all began by playing in the local recreational league. Now, one of the things I could never quite understand about those early soccer years was the idea that everything had to be fair. 
So while it made it difficult sometimes for us as parents and fans and spectators, we always did our best to kind of just roll with it because Christians are fair because Jesus is fair. So no one ever got cut from the team. It didn't matter whether you were a strong striker, an average defender, or a butterfly chaser. You made the team because that was fair. And, well, Jesus is fair. It didn't matter how often you made it to practice. You always got playing time. That goalie who somehow defied the laws of physiology and physics by actually creating a larger space between their feet when bending down to stop a ball, or the player who couldn't kick a, a, a ball, a stationary ball, all got the same amount of playing time as everyone else because that, of course, was fair. And Jesus is fair. And as a result, the, girl, the teams that my girls played on often lost a lot of games because the best players had to take their turn on the bench. And we as parents didn't complain or we didn't grumble because that's fair. And Jesus is fair. Fairness is certainly something we should practice, equally dividing up that extra large pizza, teaching kids the value of sharing. And fairness might even help address many of the issues of inequality in our world today. But we shouldn't mistake our basis of fairness on either the teachings or the example of Jesus. Because Jesus was actually not fair. For example... Jesus recognized that we are, in fact, not all created equal. Equal in value, yes. But we're all different. Jesus tells a story of the person with ten talents, and five talents, and one talent. And nowhere does he say it should be fair, so each person should then have 5.33333 repeating talents. That would have been fair. But Jesus recognized that we are not all created equal in terms of our height, our strength, our skills, or our gifting. And if you read through the, the Gospels, excuse me, often you will find that Jesus seems to ignore this principle of fairness in how he dealt with people. Now, before we get into our parable, a story that seems terribly unfair, we need to set the context. Our parable begins with the word for, indicating that the author is either going to explain something, referencing what he had just talked about or what they just talked about, or he's going to defend something that he just talked about. You often can replace the word for with the word because. In this case, Jesus is going to defend something. And he's going to defend the interaction he had that is described in Matthew chapter 19. I'll try not to spend too much time in here, but it's an important part of understanding the parable that Jesus is going to tell in Matthew chapter 20. So we'll get there, but let me try to summarize the interaction that Jesus had in Matthew 19 that necessitated the telling of this parable by comparing and contrasting the two main characters other than Jesus, in, in, uh, who are the rich young ruler and Peter. Some of you may be familiar with this story. Matthew 19, verse 16, tells us that a rich young ruler came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, 
what must I do to get eternal life? But Jesus responds to him by saying, well, you need to keep the commands. And he runs off a, a, a pretty significant list. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's quite a list that, that sets the standard very high. I certainly know that I haven't kept all of those in my lifetime. Well, the rich young ruler is actually able to respond that he has indeed kept these commands. He's met that standard. And so he asks, but what else am I lacking? What else do I lack? And Jesus tells him, well, you need to go and sell all of your possessions and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. Jesus takes an already high standard and he raises it up even higher. And upon hearing these conditions, these expectations, these standards, Scripture tells us that the rich young man, the rich young ruler, went away sad because he had great wealth. Or in other translations, it says he had great possessions or great property. Jesus' requests of him would have meant selling all of his land, selling his gold and his silver, giving the proceeds away, and then giving up his rule and his leadership. It was a monumental ask, and one the rich young man couldn't find it in himself to do. Now, put aside what you've learned or what you think you've learned from this episode and consider, just consider for a moment the situation with this rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus with a genuine desire to follow him. He's respectful. He addresses Jesus as teacher. He's sincere in his question. He's not trying to trick or to trap Jesus as many others did. He's done his best to live a righteous life, to live according to the commands of Scripture. And he's young. He's, he's a proven leader, and he has resources. It seems to me he's the perfect kind of person to invite into Jesus' inner circle, into, into the fold. Someone who has a willing heart, someone who's living according to the commands of, of, of God, and someone who's ready to be discipled. It's someone that you would think you would do everything to include him. But Jesus does just the opposite. He makes it harder for this young man to follow him by, by adding layer upon layer upon layer of requirements and expectations until the rich young ruler no longer qualifies. And so he walks away. He's not angry or frustrated, but he's sad. He really wants to follow. But Jesus has made it so difficult, and he doesn't qualify. It, it doesn't seem fair. Drop down to chapter 19, verse 27. And now we see Peter, he of the speak first, think later mode. And Peter would have been present and privy to this interaction between Jesus and this rich young ruler. He would have heard what Jesus said after the question was asked. He would, have, he would have understood what he was saying. And he says this to Jesus. He says, we, including himself and this, I, we, we've left everything for you. What then will there be for us? 
Again, let's just pause and, and think about that for a moment. Is it just me? Or does this statement and this question seem more than just a little bit prideful, self-righteous, and self-serving to you? It, it does to me. We've left everything to follow you. Really? What did you leave, Peter? What was Peter's occupation before following Jesus? Some of you will know. He was a fisherman. Now, there's nothing to indicate he was a particularly successful fisherman, nor was he a particularly profitable fisherman. So what exactly did you leave, Peter, to follow Jesus? Small wooden boat? A net? Fishing line, some fishing hooks perhaps? Consider this. What did Jesus and some of the other disciples do after Jesus died on the cross? They went back to fishing. Unlike the rich young ruler who would never get back his land, never get back his gold or his silver, never get back his authority as a leader, being a fisherman didn't really require a whole lot of investment or capital, and it didn't build much in terms of assets and equity. It was easy to leave, and it was easy to get back into. So Peter, what exactly did you leave to follow Jesus. Now, if that's not arrogant enough, Peter asked a question, what then will there be for us? You've left very little. You've sacrificed maybe not that much. And now you're asking Jesus what rewards, what benefits, what perks are going to come with me sacrificing everything to follow you? Like, talk about an eye-rolling moment. But look how Jesus responds. He says, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. What? Peter and others like him, who, let me remind us, have left very little, sacrifice not really that much, will one day sit on a throne judging the 12 tribes of Israel. They'll be given authority and responsibility and rule. Is it just me or, or does something about that just not sit quite right? Does something not seem fair? Notice this as well. When addressing the rich young ruler, Jesus tells him, he needs to obey this command, and this command, and this command, and this command, and this command. It's not in the text, but you can insert it into the text. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not give false testimony, and honor in your father, and 
love your neighbor as yourself. And he, the, the rich and says, I've done all those things. He says, okay, well, well, yeah, you think you're doing great. But here, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and follow me. The requirements come one after another. They're stacked up on top of another. Each and every one must be fulfilled for the rich young ruler to begin following Jesus. But when addressing Peter and the others who are listening, Jesus says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields, it's like it's multiple choice. It's a grab bag of requirements of which you can reach in and pick one, and if you fulfilled it, then you qualify. So for the uber-qualified rich young ruler, Jesus stacked up requirement upon requirement upon requirement until this rich young ruler was disqualified, and for, well, for the less qualified, Jesus says, well, you know, anyone will do. And then Jesus tops it all off by saying this, but many who will uh, be first, oh, sorry, um, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first, which seems to reinforce this unfairness. That you can work hard, you can give up everything much to be first, but God might move you to the back of the line. Or you can kind of coast along, don't give up much, don't sacrifice much, and God might move you to the front of the line. It just doesn't seem fair. So that's the situation in the context which necessitated Jesus telling this parable, where he's going to defend this interaction where Jesus himself seems to be just so very unfair. Now notice before we get into things that at the end of Matthew chapter 19, we read, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And if you jump down to Matthew 20 verse 16, Jesus makes a similar statement where he says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. We have to recognize that chapter and verse divisions were added later in the scripture to make it easier to reference. So in this narrative, we're actually seeing the parable as a a sandwich between this first will be last and last will be first concept. So we read the whole thing through, Matthew 19 and 20 through, we see the flow of this going on. We don't stop at 19 and then begins a new thought in, in, in chapter 20. Now let's read it through. And glancing at the clock, we should finish in reasonable amount of time, plus I have 15 minutes banked from last week that I can, I can bleed into if I need to. I, hopefully not. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon, and he did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing around here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them for their wages, beginning with the last ones hired 
and then going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came in, each received a denarius. So when those who were hired, so when uh, those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who, you hired, uh, these who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who has hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do, with, uh, to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Now the situation that Jesus describes in this parable would have been well known and common as seasonal workers would have gathered in a central spot in the city waiting for landowners and farmers from outside the city to come into the city looking to hire those who are willing to work for the day. Without unions or minimum wage laws, it would have been up to the landowner and the laborer to de decide upon a wage, what would be a, a wage for a day's work. Uh, if we were in a similar situation today, it could be perhaps a farmer who is just outside of Dalmany. And he has land there, and he has crops that need work, and he would drive into downtown Saskatoon and look for workers that would be willing to come out and be hired. A workday would have gone from 6 a.m. in the morning until 6 p.m. in the evening. And so those who are wanting the best chance at getting work and, and, and the best choice of work would have arrived uh, uh, early, maybe 5.30 in the morning, to, to be available, to be there for anybody who would come in looking for hired help. And they would have brought with them, in today's terms, like I said, they probably would have uh, brought a hat with them to shield themselves from the hot summer sun. They would have had gloves and proper footwear to protect their hands and their feet. And they may have brought a, a thermos of coffee to, you know, give them that kickstart in the morning. Certainly a large jug of water available to them to keep them hydrated and refreshed along the, uh, during the day. And probably a lunch or two that they could eat uh, during the day as well. The landowner left, his, left home in his truck maybe about 5.30 in the morning as well, they made the trip downtown and found a large group of workers. He would have looked over them and he selected the best of them, at least who appeared to be the best. Strongest, maybe the younger ones, a little more fit. And selecting the best of that bunch, he drives them out to his field and on the way, they, they decide, they negotiate, and they settle on payment. What would be fair payment for a day's uh, labor? And so let's say, just to put it in our terms, they agreed to be paid $240 for the day, $20 an hour for 12 hours of work. And that wage would be, well, that would be fair. The landowner drops the men off to work, and then he heads home. A few hours later, about 8.30, 9 o'clock, the landowner heads back into the city. Perhaps he needed to pick up some parts for his equipment or whatever. And driving around downtown again, he notices more workers looking to be hired. So he calls out to them and says, hey, come work in my field. I have lots of work to do, and, and, and now I agree to pay him whatever is right, whatever is fair. Well, if $240 was a going rate for a full day's work, then three-quarters of a day would have garnered these workers. Well, you can do the math. 
$180. That would be fair. Those who had started at 6 a.m., perhaps they were taking a short water break, would have seen this truck coming with more workers in it and seen them arrive several hours after they had begun. And the landowner has to make another trip into the city at noon, and he does the same thing. And again at 3, where Scripture tells us he did the same thing. And that means more than just hired more workers. He hired them and agreed to pay them what is right, whatever is right. So again, if you're using your calculators, those who began work at noon would have been paid, well, $120. And those who began at 3 p.m. would have been paid $60. That would be fair. Finally, at 5 p.m., the landowner finds himself back in the city. He's burned probably a couple of tanks of gas by now. And he's found more men in the downtown waiting to work. And he asks them, why, haven't, why have you been standing around here all day? He says, well, no one's hired us. Maybe this was the less physically capable of the bunch, less likely to do a hard day's labor in a field, maybe a little bit older and less capable. Maybe they were known to be lazy, and so they haven't been hired by anyone else. They're kind of the cast-offs by this time. It's 5 p.m. already now. There's only a day left in the workday. He says, come and work for me. I'll pay you whatever is right. That would have been $20 for the hour that left was remaining in the workday. And that would be, well, that would be fair. The hot, muggy workday mercifully comes to an end. And so the landowner gets his foreman to call the workers in so they can be paid. They paid immediately on the spot. No e-transfer or anything like that. He says, begin with those who started last. So whether you started at 6, 9, 12, 3, or 5, if you started at 5, you would be paid first, working way all the way back to the ones who started in the beginning of the day at 6. Well, that doesn't seem very fair either, does it? Those who began at 6 a.m. endured a long, hot day. They had accomplished more in the field. They certainly were more in need of, of a hearty supper, perhaps a nice, cool shower to refresh themselves. But now they're forced to wait while the foreman pays those who arrived last first. So the foreman calls those who started at 5 o'clock, come on forward. Those who had literally just arrived, those who had hardly even broken a sweat, those who got to work in the cool of the evening, and he pays them a denarius, or in our comparison, $240. Now, you can imagine the, the stunned look on the faces of those who began at 6 a.m. Oh, hold on. That's the wage we agreed to. Yet those who worked one-twelfth as long as we did, did one-twelfth as much work as we did, endured one-twelfth of the hot, sticky, and muggy day that we did, are getting paid just as much as we agreed to. So as they're discussing this amongst themselves, Maybe they're considering that, say, well, you know, well, maybe the landowner is going to pay us 12 times what these workers received. Do the math again, $2,880. We did 12 times as much for 12 times as long. $2,880 is 12 times as much, and that would be fair. And we're not told how much the other workers received. I think that's primarily because Jesus wants to draw our attention and our comparison to those who started at the latest hour and those who began at the earliest hour. Jesus 
draws our attention to this comparison here. And these workers who started at 6 a.m. have been now standing in the payment line for half hour, 45 minutes, maybe up to an hour. And they're finally called forward. And just like the last workers, they're given a denarius, $240 for the day. Now look at their response. It tells us that they grumbled against the landowner, drawing their, his attention to the obvious that they who had worked the entire day got the same amount as those who only worked one hour. They say, you have made them, those who started at five, equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. You've made their value equal to our value. That's not fair. You're paying them the same amount as you're paying us. That's not fair. You know what makes this even worse? Jesus is supposedly describing the kingdom of heaven. A kingdom, the place where Jesus reigns and rules, that by all accounts, according to this description, doesn't seem fair. And these workers, maybe the next time his truck came around, would just say, no, I'm not working for you. You're not very fair. And maybe you and I aren't sure about coming into this kingdom either and submitting ourselves to the reign and rule of Jesus. Because, well, he's not fair. But Jesus explains. The story continues to say that the landowner responded to one of those early workers. Perhaps this, uh, this worker was kind of like the union rep, right? He was kind of representing the bunch of them, however many there would have been. And he told them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Now, the word friend, the term friend, is not a term of endearment or friendship. It's actually the same word that's used when uh, Jesus addresses Judas in Matthew 26, when Judas comes with the Roman soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. It's a term used to address someone coming in, in rebellion. And the landowner reminds them that he is being completely fair to the 6 a.m. workers because his expectations to them were clear. They had negotiated with, he had negotiated with them what would be fair pay. And they got what they agreed to. It's totally fair. The landowner tells the early workers that he has been totally fair. So, so take what we agreed to and go. The kingdom of heaven is totally fair. But it's more than just fair. And Jesus explains in the rest of the landowner's comments. In his parable, the landowner says to this worker representative, I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? The landowner not only made good on what those early workers had agreed to, he was fair but he also gave the same to those who worked only an hour. He, as was his right and was his choice, was generous. You see, the kingdom of heaven is not only fair, 
It is actually beyond fair. And it is generous and gracious with whatever is the king's to give. God never gives us less than what is fair, and most often he gives far more than what is fair out of his generosity and his grace. You see, we might have our own human understanding of what's fair, but what supersedes our understanding of fairness is the generosity and the grace of God. And that is, in essence, the good news of the gospel. Another key in understanding parables is which perspective we take or which character we see the parable, uh, through which eyes we see the parable through. And if we have been taking the perspective of the early workers, then certainly we see ourselves as deserving more of what God has given us. And when we look around at others around us, we see unfairness at every turn. But if we take the perspective of the last workers, which is the perspective we're supposed to take, then we see the undeserved grace and generosity of God. Consider this. We actually don't want God to treat us fairly, and we should be thankful that he doesn't. You see, if God treated us fairly, then our sin and our sinfulness, our rebellion, our desire to do things our own way, to walk in our own path, to set our own priorities, to set our own path of life, fairly would deserve an eternity apart from God, an eternity of punishment and suffering. However, because of God's great generosity and his great grace, he sent us his one and only son so that through no work, effort, or action of ourselves, we could be made right with him simply by putting our faith in Jesus' completed work on the cross. His sending of Jesus was not an act of fairness. It was an act of grace and generosity. I invite you and the worship team to come back up on stage as we conclude. About 30 years ago, I was working at a Christian bookstore here in Saskatoon, Fellowship Book Center. Some of you who have been around for a long time might remember it. Incidentally, Pastor Santosh also worked there. That's where we first met each other. I think we had a couple years where we overlapped. We worked together there at the same time. I think about... Uh, I think we had about two years, I think, of overlap where, where we spent some time together. Anyways, um, I'd been working there for just over a year, and we were having a particularly crazy Christmas season. Lots of extra hours, lots of hours after the store was closed, lots of staying late, coming in early. And after that Christmas season was over, our bosses surprised us with a Christmas bonus check that if, I, if my, the best uh, of my recollection, and if my recollection is correct, amounted to the equivalent of about two weeks' pay. And it was their way of thanking us for all the extra work that we had put in. Now, because we were in retail, there was a ceiling on how high we could make. They couldn't just, you know, we weren't uh, paid by the tax dollar. We weren't unionized. It wasn't like we could just keep incrementally increase our pay. So we were, whether you worked there for a year or whether you worked for 10 years, our pay was about the same. And so these bonus checks was, were about the same for each of us. Now, if you had been working there 10 years or more, 
You might justifiably look at your check compared to, to, to someone else's and say, well, it's the same amount. That, that's not fair. But I had only worked there about a year. And so I looked at this bonus check as something as a gift out of gen incredible generosity. As Jesus hung on the cross in excruciating pain from the torture that he had just suffered, exposure to the hot sun without shade or drink, hanging, listening to the jeers and the taunts of the crowd around him, there are two men that hung with him. And unlike Jesus, both of these were criminals and were justly or fairly being punished in the manner of the day for the crimes that they had committed. One of the men, even in the face of certain death, continued to be indignant, not only toward the authorities that had hung him there, but now to Jesus who was beside him. And he screams at Jesus, aren't you the Messiah? I'm sure there was more than just a hint of sarcasm in his voice. Aren't you the Messiah? Well, save yourself, and while you're doing it, save us as well. The other criminal was completely the opposite. He says to his criminal partner, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly or fairly. We are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And turning to Jesus, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus then responds, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise often wondered what that scene in heaven would have looked like when that criminal arrived. I'm sure the other saints were kind of milling about doing whatever it is they do in heaven. Moses might have been there, Abraham, David, certainly. They were milling around in heaven, talking with each other, and all of a sudden the, at the gate shows this criminal. And I wonder if one of those saints didn't look around like, am I in the right place here? <laughs> hey, buddy. Forgive me for asking, how did you get here? And this criminal, I'm sure just as stunned as anybody else, is looking around going, like, am I in the right place? He goes, I, I, I have no idea. Just a moment ago, I was hanging on a cross, talking to this Jesus guy, and now all of a sudden, here I am. I was thinking, oh, okay, well. Uh, uh, how many Sunday services did you attend? None. How much money did you give to the local church? Uh, none. Not a penny. How many ministries did you serve in? None. How much time did you spend in children's ministry at your church? Mm, nothing. So how did you get here? I don't know. The guy beside me said I could come. It must simply be the grace and the generosity of God because I know I don't deserve it. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of heaven, it isn't just fair. It's beyond fair and characterized by God's incredible generosity and grace. 
And our call is not only to be recipients of that generosity and grace, it's to be extenders of that generosity and grace to the people and to the world that God has placed us. In a world longing for fairness, let's, as God's people, go beyond fairness and live and demonstrate generosity and grace to others so that truly his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your amazing grace. Father, thank you. You do not give us just what is fair. But you set a standard of generosity and grace that goes well beyond what we deserve or what we think we deserve. And Father, as many of us here have been recipients of your generosity and grace, let us go into the worlds and the places among the people that you have placed us with and extend that generosity and grace to all we come all who we interact with. Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray.